Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode 130, 130. Yeah, you wouldn't think there'd be that much to talk about, but uh, <laughs> there, there surely is. There surely is. And as always, if you have a question or comment, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them on our our server at Podbean in the comments section. And uh, Podbean's a pretty good deal, so uh, at least there's been no censorship there. So anyway, uh, you can leave the uh, leave your question in the comments section, and we will get to it. Um, well, let's see. Uh, some people have taken me to task saying, ha, the Russians didn't roll over the Ukrainians as fast as you thought they would. To which case, I, su- I have to tell you, I never thought they would roll over them that quickly. Um, you know, what I said was, it's a physics problem. And there's going to be overwhelming force that's just going to come to bear and grind down whatever resistance the Ukrainians can put up and a bunch of them are going to get killed in the process and handing out weapons at police stations is going to do nothing but get people killed that's what I call foolhardiness uh, you can't put together you know great you know you see you see these guys kind of maneuvering down the street and you take a few shots at them even if you hit one of them you're not going to last long even if you turn around and, and retire at high speed, uh, somebody will catch you. And civilians aren't, by their nature, infantrymen. And they're not part of infantry units, so they're not really going to do very well. And so handing out, I mean, it looks great on TV. You know, we're going to we're gonna last and we're going to fight and we're going to fight to the last man. And you see... You know, the gun-toting blonde, you know, who looks like a supermodel. And, you know, she's got her AK-74 and, and she's going to shoot the invaders. Hey, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And they're not going to be successful doing that. And, you know, I part of the Russian way of war is they, they don't really care. They, they might take, if they take casualties to achieve their goals, that's okay. That's what they did in World War II. What you're really seeing, military strategy-wise, and I'll just go through it now, um, what you're really seeing is a, a World War II-style battle that the Russians fight. That's their most relevant and recent experience. You know, Afghanistan was kind of an insurgency deal, but the last conventional war they were in was World War II, and this is how they, this is how they pushed into Germany. They just ground their way into the country, and they're grinding their way into the Ukraine. And hey, they lose a tank here and there. They don't care. You know, one of the things that the reason you cannot trust what you see is you see a disabled or burning T-72. Okay, that's fine. T-72 is a crappy tank. Everybody knows it. Every every uh, conflict it's been in, it's gotten clobbered. But the T-72, you see one burning and you say, aha, see, they're, they're, they're taking them down little piecemeal, one at a time. 
But what you didn't see was when that first tank was hit, what were the other tanks in that tank platoon doing? And the answer is they were probably killing the people who disabled or destroyed the first tank. That's how tank warfare kind of works sometimes. Um, tanks move around in little units called platoons. There are usually three or four platoons in a company, uh, three or four companies in a battalion three or four battalions in a brigade and they sometimes mix it up and they'll have infantry brigades and tank and infantry battalions and tank battalions working together in the same brigade so uh, what you're seeing is is kind of an illusion you're not seeing the rest of the story you're not seeing all that now are is there logistics goofed up especially the you know the long convoy and all that yeah probably so um, that's with armies in conventional operations that is not unusual that that uh, logistics is goofed up maybe not to this extent but everybody's looking in the wrong place if you're looking at the capital of what they call kiev which we used to call kiev if you're looking there you're looking in the wrong place the russians are making incredible progress in the south of the country uh, along the black sea you know sebastopol and and some of these other these other cities that are down there uh, that's that's what they're probably really after I would assume that that area is at least if not majority or predominantly it is very heavily um, Russian speaking so the the Donbass which they're they moved into with no problem the south which they're rolling up with comparatively few problems those are the main efforts. The secondary effort appears to be Kiev or Kiev. And, uh, you know, whatever they get out of that, they get out of that. Um, normally, if you take the enemy's capital, that's called a center of gravity. That's like the thing that holds them together. And uh, if you take the enemy's capital, usually that ends the war. You know, that's just the psychological, the, you know, that whole the whole thing of losing the capital it really means that the war is kind of over the country's basically knocked out so if they take Kiev or Kiev um, that will probably cause an end to the hostilities what they're not doing and this is very careful they're not doing two things one is they're staying away from the western part of the country which is where the borders with NATO are they're staying away from that and I think because they don't want to provoke or have an accidental contact with NATO armed forces, they don't want an incident. They don't want something happening there that they don't control. So they're kind of staying away from that. The other thing we have not seen is the full power of the Russian Air Force. Unlike us, we, you know, De Desert Storm was really the probably an example 180 degrees from what we're seeing today but desert storm remember led off with the air war the shock and all and planes filling the skies and bombs falling everywhere hitting everything that was worth hitting uh, military targets i think the russian air force is not doing that for two reasons i think there are two reasons for that number one i don't think that their air ground coordination is that good so they don't really have the intelligence they don't really have the targeting to knock out all this stuff so they'd be just dropping bombs all over the place some would hit most would not the other thing is i think they're holding that in reserve just in case uh 
a third country tries to intervene and a powerful Russian Air Force would be something that could that could really blunt an attack and so they don't want to commit it too early uh, another thing we see is we don't see and it doesn't mean that they're not there doing things but we don't seem to see a lot of special operations going in there taking you know key pieces of of terrain or infrastructure bridges or you know TV stations anything that could be critical we don't see them really doing that so that's that's gonna be pretty interesting um, I don't know what to make of that but we just don't we just don't see it at this point and I'll just kind of finish this up by saying we seem to see more terrain oriented and objective oriented movement by the Russians not so much force destruction as in let's lure the uh, um, Ukrainian army out and destroy it and then we have the the field it seems like they're more into capturing certain objectives which leads me to believe that they're not going to go for the whole country they're they're simply going to grab the parts that they want and then say okay now we'll negotiate from here and if they grab the capital it's an incredible bargaining chip uh, they'll be able to say look we're we don't want the western part of this country we don't we don't want most of it we just want about a quarter of it and we'll even give the capital back we're nice guys we'll do that uh, we'll see we'll see how this uh, goes and then we have the state of the union speech this irrelevant rambling where even he tried to fit gun control in this this geriatric fool named Joe Biden an election thief his son was on the payroll of corrupt Ukrainian companies now is on the payroll of corrupt Chinese companies and you know influence peddling all the rest of this this guy gets up and has the audacity to tell us that we need to sacrifice well I, I don't know that we need to sacrifice what we need to do is become energy independent and then you know when you're in that position as we were when Trump was president when you're energy independent hey you can tell anybody to bite off whether it's the uh, Middle Eastern OPEC countries that those bunch of fools or whether it's Russia a big energy producer whether it's Venezuela another energy producer when you're energy independent you tell those people to forget it to shove it and when you're not then you're at their behest and now he's trying to beg the Middle Easterners to up their oil production to help us out so we'll see what happens uh, this is a dangerous very dangerous situation this could spiral I don't know if it will start World War three but this could start a very serious conflict that would involve and, and there would be a real gut check hey what if you know what if Poland um, gets into at least at the border a shooting war with these you know Russian troops that are taking over the Ukraine what happens then um, article 5 of the NATO Charter get called in and everybody comes to their rescue or do we try to sit there and say whatever happens kind of happens because we don't want to start World War three this is a this is a dangerous situation and um, 
it's not going to be over anytime soon. It is not going to be over anytime soon. Uh, let's talk about something else. You know, I, I really don't like um, propagandists. And I don't like people who, who put out anti-gun propaganda when they themselves have no, no command of the knowledge. They're not experts. And they just spew this nonsense. Uh, and, and it could come out of either end of them, you know, because that's, that's what it is. There's a radio show called Handle on the Law. And this guy is a fast-talking lawyer. It's, it's usually played, I, I ran across it like Sunday late afternoons, very late afternoons. Um, and when I'm in my car driving, you know. Um, guy was pretty entertaining. In, in many ways, the guy's kind of entertaining. He gets fools who call him up and say, hey, you know, a dog bit me. I was beating a dog and it bit me. Do I have a case against the owner? And he, he laughs and tells them no and tells them why they're stupid and everything else. Every once in a while, he gets somebody with a case and then he he shifts them off to his... Uh, um, He's got a, a syndicate of lawyers, I think, you know, or some sort of a some sort of a cabal of lawyers that he he shifts them off to. But anyway, this guy talked about the Remington settlement with the Sandy Hook people, and you know this is this is very bad. Uh, Remington never should have settled. I, I guess at some point you follow your lawyer's advice, and if they say, "Look, get out of this, settle, and move on." And it doesn't set a legal precedent. If you go to trial and you lose, you can set a legal precedent. If you settle, it's no real legal precedent. But a lot of people have been going after gun companies. Even, even crazy Joe Biden said, "Where's these gun companies?" Well, I, he never says car companies are responsible for traffic deaths. Um, cutlery companies aren't responsible for knife knife deaths. Um, he doesn't say that. And you know, any anything can be misused, and a firearm is a particularly dangerous instrument, and it is designed to do something else. But this fool handle was talking about the AR-15 and the Remington in light of the Remington settlement, and said, "Well, the reason they got a settlement was, you know, even though there's a law in the book saying that uh, um, gun manufacturers can't be held liable, why everybody knows the AR-15 is not made for self-defense, hunting, or target shooting. It is made for, you know, killing people, which is a blatant falsehood. Now, I, I looked up who this handle on the law guy is. Um, he's like 70 or 75 years old or something. He's a geezer. He doesn't know any better. Probably lived in the inner city his whole life. Probably graduated from law school like 1970 or something so you know this dude he he doesn't he doesn't get it the the truth of the matter is an ar-15 is good for self-defense especially if you have multiple attackers an ar-15 is used in target shooting i use one myself ar-15s are used in hunting ar-15s are used for a whole variety of legitimate and legal purposes and the number of AR-15s in the country is immense, and the number that are misused is quite small. And if he actually, you know, was smart enough, uh, why anybody would pay this guy to defend him, I don't know. But if he was actually smart enough to do any research, he would know that rifles in general, of which semi-automatic rifles are a subset, rifles in general are used in crime 
and murder, much less than blunt, instru blunt instruments. So your hammers, baseball bats, tire irons, all that kind of stuff, crowbars, all that kind of stuff is used more than rifles in general and semi-automatic rifles in particular. So, you know, I always judge people and I judge shows and I judge everything by what they say about gun control because if they don't have those facts right, you can't trust them on anything else. And so, you know, if you do listen to this guy, I would suggest turning him off. Um, you know, find some classic rock or something and turn that on. Uh, you'll get more out of it. Which brings me to the next, the next deal. Um, I, I just saw some in-range TV question and answer gizmo. I guess it was for February. And it looks like, he's, you know, maybe it's me, but it seems like he's drifting awful left wing. He's associating with some people who have real left wing ideology. And I, I don't have a problem with that if they believe. Here's where, here's where I am. Somebody doesn't have to believe what I believe to be good with gun rights. If you believe in the right of self-defense, the right to keep and bear arms, um, don't believe in all this claptrap about, you know, well, the Second Amendment was about muskets, not AR-15s. If you don't believe any of that trash, any of that absolute, you know, garbage that they spew, then I'm okay with you. I'm okay with you. If you are a leftist who's arming yourself to violate other people's civil rights or commit acts of, of violence or establish a chaz somewhere. If you're one of those people, then I have no use for you. And you better find a way to declare yourself because if I have to go on gut instinct, I go on gut instinct. And that may or may not be to their, their advantage. It's probably not going to be to their advantage. Uh, here's a case in point. You know, you look at the Kenosha, all that Kenosha deal, that dude, Grosskreutz or whatever his name was. Yeah, he had a gun. He was, he was, he was exercising his, his right to keep and bear arms. But look what a, look what a dirtbag he was. Look what an absolute dirtbag he was. He is not somebody I want to associate with or I want to hold up as an exemplar of, yes, this guy was the Second Amendment. He had his Glock pistol. He pointed it at the wrong guy and wound up getting half his arm blown off. Um, he was lucky that happened. He was lucky that, that, he, that he didn't get center punched and uh, stamped paid in full on that deal. But, uh, yeah, those, those are not... The kind of people that we need advocating for the Second Amendment. So I'm very, very leery about, you know, in range TV and some of the people they've had on. They, they've, they've been some kind of I don't want to say sketchy, but people who I would not, uh, people who I would have to check out to see who they are, what they believe, and uh, what are their motivations, because you actually don't know. Okay, here's my favorite part of the deal. Um, oh, I do have to say one other thing. <laughs> I'm on a Discord server. I, I won't really talk about which one, but the, there are some people who, who the ideas they have are, are simply amazing. And 
simply inexplicable. Uh, one guy was talking and I almost got kicked off because I, I made a joke about him, but he was talking about developing this all-around rifle that he's evidently building, or he's evidently built. I guess it's a 338 Lapua, and it's got the you know the Giganto stock, the Giganto scope, the Giganto everything, because everything in that caliber is pretty Giganto. Now those are pretty cool guns, and <clears throat> he was he was using that. And he said he's trying to develop a rifle that he can shoot from a stand um, across a bean field. And if you know what that means, that means the kind of hunting that's in a lot of the Midwest and, and the East where you hunt from a stand and, you know, a, a deer is maybe 150 yards away maximum and you shoot it across these kind of smaller bean fields and, and things. But you're shooting from essentially a stand or a blind. And um, so this is a rifle you could do that. Now that's comparatively short range for what a 338 Lapua is designed for and what it really does. And his other one was, well, and I can take this same rifle and I can shoot an elk at a thousand yards. And so I have one gun that does both. And so I, after I quit laughing, I, I and, and of course he told us his gun weighs 25 pounds. Now let me put that in context for you because you say well, 25 pounds what is 25 pounds there's i can lift up a 25 pound weight in the gym and you know it's heavy but it's not that you know it's not horrid you know um let's see an m1 grand is about well nine and a half pounds ten pounds maybe you know when you load it and all that an m60 machine gun is 23.5 pounds probably up to about 25 and a half or 26 if you have the uh, the 100 round uh, belt in it so you're really he's talking about hauling something that's the weight of an m60 machine gun around so i of course laughed and said you've just created <laughs> the world's first crew served anti-deer rifle and of course they they thought that was just terrible but you know it's true um there's no such thing as a good all-around rifle that does everything well. And that's why we have so much specialization in the gun industry. Um, depending on what you're going to do, an M4 style gun might work. Or you might need the 25 pound 338, depending on where the targets are, how far away, how, how far you have to carry this thing. And... You know, and that's not even going into the ethics of would you, I would never shoot a game animal at a thousand yards. I don't care what I have. Even if I had a 50 caliber M2, you know, I'm not going to do that. Because the problem is your bullet and, and even great ones like the 338 and, and some of these other, you know, there's a whole list of them. I'm not going to go through them. But you wound the animal, you're a click away before you can even figure, get in the vicinity of where the blood trail is going to start. And are you going to find it? I mean, finding where a blood trail starts when you have just walked a thousand meters and maybe you've walked a hundred meters too far, maybe you're a hundred meters too short, but you're going to have to go, you know, in the great big circles. It, your chance of finding that blood trail are extremely small. Therefore, it's not going to be a very ethical kill or an ethical harvest. Um, I just think that that's foolish now are there people who do it 
I assume there are because this guy talked about it. But I think that when you're looking at long-range hunting, you better look at what are the really, get out of the theoreticals and really look at the practicalities and the ethics. Because, you know, hey, you shoot a deer across a canyon. Well, great. Not only are you a click away, but now you've got a, a canyon to cross. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be nightmarish. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what really the ethical range is. I mean, for most modern cartridges, I would have to say that the max ethical range is probably going to be 400 yards. Just saying. I mean, I'm, I, and you can get, you, and, and it's no, it's no trick to build something that'll hit a target farther than that. But really, um, you can cover 400 yards on foot and you can estimate pretty much where that you know your, your chance of finding the blood trails a lot greater um, all, all of that is is gonna be a lot easier at 400 yards adding another 600 yards onto that is is gonna be incredible and, and I've seen some of these shows where these guys are shooting um, you know in places like Utah and Wyoming and probably Montana there are some far distances where you can see some game animals but you know the the other the other side of this coin is it's what they in the military call PID and that is positive identification you gotta make sure that you got the right thing the right you know are you putting the weapon on the correct target is it the target you think it is that's what PID means really is it the target you think it is positive identification so doing that at a thousand yards just seems on a game animal that that is maybe stationary but might also be moving maybe slowly they, that's <laughs> probably too far away to get spooked but um, i know from the shooting i've been doing lately and i've been doing some 400 yard shooting which doesn't sound very impressive and probably isn't but i think it's actually pretty pretty cool um but what i've done is i've measured a thousand yards and I've looked at it through my spotting scope and a few other things because I really don't want to take a rifle out and kind of where I do this, you know, county roads, you know, <laughs> you don't don't really want to be uh, um, doing that. But you can take a spotting scope out there, which is actually about as powerful as some of these great rifle scopes you can buy now. Um, I think the rifle scopes are actually better than some of the spotting scopes. But you you try to you know and I, I go on the map and I say okay I know that this this point that I'm looking at is a thousand yards away that is a long way off and even a large animal like an elk or like a moose is going to be um, you know that's gonna be hard to wheel in on and getting all that right to make a clean one-shot kill or make a clean kill it's going to be very, very hard. So uh, I was kind of laughing at that. The crew served anti-deer rifle. Uh, normally, we specialize. We get the weapon for what we need. You would not use that across a bean field. Might use a 30-30 or something. But definitely not that. Okay, here are some questions and some questions and answers. And I will answer these questions. Number one, 
do you shoot 32 Winchester special lead bullets? And the answer is, well, I'm getting ready to start. I just uh, cast and powder coated some that I'm going to be experimenting with. Um, again, it's a Lee bullet. And uh, now, <clears throat> here's the deal. 32 Winchester special bullets, molds, and all the, all the stuff you need is hard to find. So what I'm experimenting with is a lower cost alternative, which is a lead bullet that's cast to 323. It's powder coated and then sized back down in a Lee sizer to 323. Instead of the notional, the allegedly the bore on a 32 Winchester special is 321. Most I've read where people use 323 bullets all the time, so rather than try to get a $200 mold to throw a 321 bullet and then try to figure out a sizer, um, I just went with the 323 because really for a fraction of the cost, really it was about 50 bucks. Yeah, for 50 bucks, I'm, I'm casting. So uh, as soon as I load them up, I will see and make sure that they chamber and uh, go from there. I have a funny feeling since my my 32 Winchester special is probably from 1946 or 47. Uh, that's a long time ago. So that's uh, that's like 70 some years ago. So I don't think it has a 321 bore anymore, if it ever even had one. You know, in those days, it, it could be a little tighter, but I doubt it. Probably a little bit loose. So these these bullets, I'm hoping, are are going to be just the perfect fit. So we'll see how that shakes out. Okay, what do you see in ammo availability now? Well, I see a disturbing trend. Obviously, we're not going to get the cheap Russian ammo anymore anytime soon. There may be some market equivalents out there. Um, it's like I was saying during the whole COVID thing. If you are Poland, if you're Romania, if you are Moldova, if you are Bulgaria, if you are even the, you know, Serbia, any place, former Yugoslavia, any of those guys, you should be cranking that stuff out, selling it to the Yankees, selling it to the Americans. Turn out that, that stuff that we like, which is the uh, uh, steel-cased, low-cost ammo. Because everything I'm seeing on the market now, I, I see some ball ammunition, and you see the last of the Russian ammo is kind of hitting the market. But that's going to be gone here. Very soon. I mean, none's obviously going to come in now, even though they, some companies had licenses where they could bring it in. I think they're just going to shut all that off. So, uh, consequently, um, you know, you're looking at a lot of brass-cased ammo, which is more expensive, and this stuff is going to be, you know, it's out there. I mean, you can go into Cabela's and any of the big stores, Shields, uh, Bass Pro. Uh, online everywhere yeah you can buy nine millimeter all you want but it's gonna cost you it is gonna cost you same thing with 556 really a lot of the the lesser calibers you know you're not gonna find 30 40 crag anytime soon just not gonna happen so anyway um, the popular calibers are out there the ammo is expensive it is coming down in price but it's never gonna hit 2019 levels and you're not gonna hit the same price that uh, they were selling the steel case stuff for what I suspect will happen is when they reach an equilibrium where they say hey we're only selling so much they're gonna cut back production because 
even if they flood the market, they can't sell this stuff for less than it costs them to make, and that they have to sell it with with their margin to to make some money. So that's what I see, and uh, I think it is. You know, we're in it's interesting times. We're starting to see primers, but they're god, they're ungodly expensive. But if you need them, you know, you have no choice. There's that's one of the things you have really no choice on. Um. Okay. All right. Here is the next question. I've I know I've talked about this before, but what accessories do I need on an AR-15? Well, the answer is you don't need any. You can you can, totally useful the way it is. Um, depending on what configuration you have, um, you know. A, I I tell you, well I'll just go with it. My M forgery I run with an EOTech site a I think they're $40 Magpul pop-up rear sight and you know that's that's really and and I do put a front you know kind of what they call a broomstick I do put one of those on the front um, because I like the way it feels so that's how I run a, an M4 style gun you know I don't put a lot of lights lasers and all this other happiness on there I realize you can do that you could probably put more on there if I used a I, I like the EOTech that takes the AA batteries why is that because AA batteries are everywhere and you know I just even if I get shitty AA batteries I put them in there and it'll work for a while you know it doesn't have to be the cool lithium batteries I, I like those and I that's what I use um, but if those went dead I have my pop-up rear sight and I can still use the gun and I've told this story before. Um, when I was kind of experimenting with this, I took my uh, gun out to the range and boop, the EOTech went dead because the batteries were out and I did not have a rear sight. And so I was like, hey man, stuck. And another time that happened and I did have my pop-up rear sight and it's like, hey, I'm back in business. Not as good as it was, but it's definitely usable. And uh, you know, the little pop-up sight the little Magpul one is it's kind of plastic but it, it works I can see the front sight post through the uh, the EOTech and uh, you see the rear see the rear aperture and there you go so awesome it works uh, number four is that what number four yeah number four what do you think of hollow sun optics um, hollow sun optics I've I've handled them they look nice. Um, they seem to be okay. Um, they're not military grade, so I'm not interested. Uh, unless I was putting it on some rifle I don't care about. I mean, I put a True Glow on a Ruger PC9 because I really don't care. I'm not going to be using that to fight the hordes, fight my way out of the Chaz. Um, so just for a, a regular dot on a gun that, that that's there, it's fine if you have that for any kind of serious purpose I would you know it's a Chinese made optic so what do you want me to say I mean uh, um, they're serviceable and they're useful but are they ruggedized to military specifications no um, do I really need a ruggedized optic for almost everything no I just like to have them on certain guns that I could potentially be using in a serious circumstance but I mean uh, you know 
you know, pay your money, take your choice. But you're getting the, the pride of Peking there. That's that's for sure. Uh, do, 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 do. Did you see the series Reacher? And what did you think of the weapons in Reacher, especially his 44 Desert Eagle? Um, I, I watched Reacher. I enjoyed it. I thought actually it was it was quite well done, much better than the Tom Cruise movies. Um, they got a guy, an actor who, who, from what I understand, I've never read the books, but um, he is more true to the spirit of the character because of the way the character is portrayed in the books. Um, I thought it was really pretty excellent until until the very end, the the very last one, and not to let out. If you haven't seen it yet, you might want to just tune away but um you know he he gets into a fight with like you know the super badass villain who's you know some sort of south american special operations dude or whatever and the guy basically hits him about 10 or 15 times with a, a crowbar i can't remember if it's a crowbar or tire iron and you know i don't care how big and bad you are and how buff you are and everything else if you take a hit from something like that a vicious hit um, you're going to be hurt and hurt really bad and you're not going to take a bunch of them you know and it almost knocks him out then he kind of falls into the pool and kind of you know it kind of wakes him back up and he gets out of the pool and and deals with the guy and and, and all that um, but you know yeah they, these things could break your bones and, and, and I mean just very painful hits and that's not even if you you know you catch the the claws of this thing you know like on a crowbar so um, that, that was actually pretty phony what did I think about using a 44 Desert Eagle? Uh, I thought that was actually really cool uh, because he, the actor is a super big guy. So it's not like, it's like when Arnold Schwarzenegger would use the Desert Eagle in, what was it, Eraser, I think he had it. And I'm sure he's had it in a few others. Um, you know, big dudes can use a big handgun and, and it doesn't look that out of place. Um, you know, it's more realistic than Dirty Harry with a, a Smith & Wesson Model 29. Uh, at least a, a Desert Eagle, you can, as magazine reloaded. Um, it's got less recoil. It's a big thumper. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was actually pretty cool that they that they used that. It, it was more realistic. And it wasn't It wasn't like, ooh, this is the, the biggest, baddest gun on the planet, you know. Can blow your head clean off. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was like... This was the gun that was available because it had been gifted to the, you know, female character. And she loaned it to uh, Reacher. And he's kind of like, the, the coolest part that I like, the coolest part was when they're leaving her her house, I guess it is. And he sees a garden, I think it was a garden gnome. And he just blows it apart. She goes, what did you do that for? And he goes, never carry a gun into combat you haven't personally test fired. That's very, very good advice. Never go to a match with a gun you haven't fired. And I've seen it. Uh, it's terrible. But I've seen it. And it usually ends badly for everyone. Okay, next question. What is the best gun rack for a Jeep? Well, the answer is I don't know. Because I've never found a good one. I have an old Wrangler. Um, I've never found a good gun rack for it. Um, the reason reason is because most of them are kind of gimmicky. Um, the other reason is, as some of them are used, 
for multiple styles of guns so they don't hold it really snug therefore you get a lot of rubbing and and the thing isn't held exactly like it would like it really should be um you know and, and the answer is you know how quick of access do you want some of them are roof racks you know they kind of fit on the the top of the you know by the roll cage they fit there the problem with that is if you're tall or if you hit a bump your your noggin is going to uh go into your into your rifle and so yeah i've never really found a, a good one um and you know I'm, I'm actually still looking so if i find one i will let you know but um there's really not a lot of good options out there for gun racks for a a jeep they're just a, and i'm talking the you know traditional jeep like a wrangler or or some of these other ones um cjs and all that um you know in world war ii they actually had the one that fit on the dash that would hold a grand or springfield um you know something like that might be a better option i don't know if you can really i don't really know how you would fix that to a more modern jeep there's just the construction of them is quite a bit different now now have to have a padded dash and that takes up a lot of the room that this gun rack would have taken up so don't know i don't know what the the best solution for that is okay another question how often are captured weapons weapons captured from the enemy used in war um well you know it depends um if you're talking about an insurgency that happens all the time because the insurgents are usually kind of underfunded and smuggling weapons into them is a lot harder than them ambushing or stealing or you know hitting a um, isolated outpost and capturing weapons so normally um in an insurgency there are a lot of weapons that are taken from the the insurgents or the guerrillas use a lot of the weapons that the uh, their opposing force would have the conventional military force uh there's also other reasons for that maybe they're trained in those weapons because maybe some of these guys are defectors um there's a whole bunch of reasons why that would that would happen and in conventional war it doesn't happen as often as you think because even even uh like World War II was just moving too fast. Now, you had guys who'd pick up souvenir P-38s or Lugers, you know, German pistols. Um, some of the, I don't, part of it is ammo. You know, if you don't have the ammo for it, if it's not a standard caliber, uh, you're, you're going to find it's not very useful. And a lot of countries aren't going to sit there and say, well, we may have captured 2,000 of these things, but it just isn't worth trying to supply them with ammo so they usually wind up either discarded or stuck away in a warehouse somewhere or, you know some something happens to them um some notable exceptions to that were world war one was one um the russian empire was losing i don't have command of the exact figures but they were just losing fantastic amounts of military equipment early on in the war and it was it was apparent that they were going to run out of rifles at some point they were losing more than they were making so they went and they purchased uh especially in the united states they actually purchased moisin nagants that were made by westinghouse and remington they purchased some japanese rifles from the british um you know arasaka rifles from the british 
the British had bought them from the Japanese in some, you know, kind of roundabout deal. Um, they still had Winchester 1895s. Um, you know, they they were they were scrounging for weapons. Now, on the obverse of that is, while they were losing a lot of weapons, Germany, of course, was capturing scads of these things. And at a certain point, it became we and Germany had kind of the same sort of problems. Hey, they're losing a lot of weapons too. So, you know, hey, you've got a, a maybe a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or maybe even five hundred thousand of these rifles. Well, then you and, and if you especially if you've captured some ammunition with it, you either can make ammunition or you can issue out captured ammunition and. Uh, you know, use them, and that's why you find World War One era Moisen de Gantz. Sometimes they have the German stick, uh, kind of a cartouche on them. Um, you definitely found that in the Spanish Civil War, where you know the losing side had a lot of Moisen de Gantz, so the the winning side kind of takes them up because it's it's military gear. They are the successor state, and so now they own a bunch of these things. And uh, so they're going to they're going to use them or at least put them in some sort of war reserve. Um, you found that, you know, when the Soviet Union broke up, countries like hey, Ukraine, Belarus and all the former Warsaw Pact countries, uh, they turned they turned a lot of German stuff from World War Two loose on the market because they had it in war reserve. You know, when you capture thousands of something and. The communists never threw anything away. If it had utility, they never threw it away. So they they just had it. And then when they needed money after the the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, they sold this stuff. And that's how you got SVTs, um, SVT forties for you know two hundred and fifty bucks. That's how you got the hundred dollar Russian SKSs. That's how you got uh, Vopo Lugers, you know, the Volks Polizei Lugers. That's how you got the Russian capture Walther P-38s. That's how you had Russian capture Mausers, you know. Um, All that stuff hit in the, like in the 90s. And, uh, you know, they were selling it for literally scrap metal prices. Literally scrap metal prices. So you kind of go there and you say, hmm, Um, it, it happens but a lot of times it's while there may be some local use of somebody picking one up and shooting it at the bad guys because his his rifle is out of ammunition and that actually happened to my uncle uh he jumped into normandy uh at a certain point his m1 carbine ran out of ammo so he ditched it and he had a german schmeiser which he had you know at least a usable supply of ammo of you know it's just one of those things um you you sit there and you go well you know you you do what you have to do a gun without ammo a rifle pistol or machine gun without ammo is not very useful to you but something else that you may have picked up off the battlefield and and wow you have seven or eight or ten or more uh magazines of ammo for it well that's that's usable but outside of that uh, there was a little bit of use of the the only real tactical use I can think of, and uh, this was kind of a Vietnam thing, but actually I used it myself. So um, to use a personal example, uh, AK-47. If you're on a long-range patrol in enemy territory, 
in Vietnam, you really don't want to have U.S. weapons because the sound of the firing signature is different. Um, it may not seem so, but when you fire them side by side, you can tell which is which, and you don't want somebody zeroing in on you because you have um, a different sounding weapon, and they know then that you are the bad guy. So uh, there were people, there were teams that were doing this kind of work who would use Kalashnikovs, and of course, you know, in there, in that area they were working in, it did not draw any undue attention. Now, for myself, I was in a place in Iraq where there were no other U.S. military. I was living on a compound that was guarded by. Blackwater and and you know had Peshmerga around the side, which were the Kurdish militia. You know, to make a long story short, um, I thought that hey, if insurgents ever breach this perimeter, I probably don't want to be spraying around. The, the minute they hear my M4 going off, they're going to know who I am and probably a good idea where I am. If I've got an AK, and so I procured one with several magazines of ammo, um, if I use that then I just sound like another AK and it's not going to attract the kind of attention that my M4 would. You know, I just, that's just kind of the thinking you have to have sometimes is what's going to bring the enemy to me? And if it's the sound of my weapon, the distinctive sound of my weapon, hey, I'm going to figure out something else. So that's a, that's another very legitimate reason. But on the, the macro level, it's usually because they've captured thousands of these things. And uh, one of the things I've never found out is I would assume after Dunkirk, just an assumption on my point, that they, that the Germans would have captured a sizable number of, of 303 Lee Enfield rifles, but you never, never see that they've been issued to anybody or anything else. Now, I do know that they issued like berthiers to, you know, police units and other people who weren't very important. I don't think they, and I did read that they they captured a, a sizable quantity of labels, but not a, um, they didn't like them. They thought they were way too obsolete, so they didn't use them. And I think some of the, I think most of the berthiers they had were actually in 7.5 French. Um, I've got an acquaintance. I haven't seen him in a while, but he he actually has one, and he was telling me that that was really the the predominant berthier in World War II. It's not the eight millimeter Lebel, but it was this other one. Uh, and of course, I don't know very much about French weapons, and I did not read the latest book on them. Uh, so I will take his word for it uh, but um, and, and I'm sure a lot of those probably both in 8mm and um, the 7.5 French were issued to probably you know militia territorial police Volkstrom you know those those kind of things so um, I mean if you're willing to issue 8mm Carcanos <laughs> you you are probably, you'd probably snap up a berthier pretty, pretty uh, handily. Um, you know that that again is another another deal. The 
the Berthier was not Berthier. The Carcano, there's actually some that were rechambered to 8mm Mauser and evidently survived um, the conversion and were useful. And, um, you know, so that's, that's another thing. At that point in the war, they would have been captured weapons because Italy, fascist Italy, had surrendered and then effectively switched sides. So they would have been, those were probably weapons that were behind the German lines and they could, you know, transport them to Germany, do the conversion, and then issue them. Seems like a lot of work. But when you're desperate, uh, I think that uh, it was well worthwhile. I'm just trying to think of anything else. Uh, you know, uh, the, a lot of the Germans used PPSHs really because of the... It had a great high rate of fire, a fairly powerful cartridge for some machine gun and capacity. But I think handling-wise, the MP40 was probably handled better, but did not have the capacity or as flat a shooting cartridge. So, you know, interesting. Very interesting how people use different different things. As I'm thinking, the Japanese, I don't believe they ever used captured weapons. And that was probably for pride and and racial superiority reasons I assume although they did try to make a copy of the Garand but that was a copy that certainly wasn't a capture but it, it's a very interesting gun it took a, a 10 shot magazine similar to in concept what a Lee Enfield would I have not ever examined one I've only seen pictures I assume it would be a the kind of the kind of battle rifle magazine that you saw in like the FN 49 the you know and all these other ones uh, AG 42B where it's not that you carry 10 loaded magazines but you you just kind of stripper clip or magazine charge that from the top um, using traditional clips like you would in a bolt-action rifle so I think that's probably the way it was but it was very interesting that that they uh, I think they made I think the Japanese made 200 of those things and I think oh, probably some number of them survive today certainly not all 200 but some number of them survive and I imagine they go for a pretty penny a very pretty penny well that's it for our questions and uh, that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is so remember, you can always email me questions at kbmakel at aol.com or leave them on Podbean. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>